Hey guys, the Relax Running membership is still only five bucks a month. Here's the thing, it's it's starting to grow and for the first hundred members, as I promised, it's gonna be five bucks a month. And that's that's five bucks a month forever. No matter how much content we get up, no matter how much the prices increase, you'll you'll never pay more than five bucks a month. So if you've been thinking about it, jump on board because I don't want you to miss that chance. All right, relaxrunning.com slash join. There's new stuff going up every week, either bonus podcasts with uh, elite athletes or professionals in the field or videos with professionals walking you through videos to help out your running. So jump on board. Today's guest is the great man, the one and only Australia's Lee Troop. Oh, man, where do you even start with a bloke like this? I know every Aussie who listens to this podcast will recognize the name. Lee is uh, a 209 marathon runner. He used to be the Australian 5K record holder, which he broke in 1999. Uh, mate, this guy's a, this guy's the real deal in the world of distance running, and it was an honor to sit down and, and chat with him. Really funny. It's uh, With a bloke like Lee Troop, the last time... Well, I have memories of when I was about 16, 17 and just seeing him running around against the best guys in Melbourne and was just so intimidated by how good he was that the first 10 minutes of this interview, I got nervous. It's so embarrassing to admit that, but you get, it, it's like, man, it's funny sitting down with a bloke that was your hero for so many years who inspired you. And now you just get to ask him questions about, you know, not only his running and his tips and guidance, but about his personal life and how he's coped through the difficult times. And it was a, it was a, it was a really good chat. But I reckon after that first 10 minutes, the conversation gets flowing. And, uh, it was just like talking to a mate that I hadn't spoken to for a little while. So I really, really enjoyed it. Lee's a great bloke, uh, a wealth of information. And, uh, every time I finish a podcast like this, I'm just excited for you guys to hear it. So I hope you really enjoy it. Um, make sure you uh, reach out to, to Troopy on social media. Let him know what you thought of the interview. Only if it's good, don't reach out to him and go, hey, mate, that was that was a rubbish chat. I'm relaxed running. If you don't like it, just don't. Just keep it to yourself, could you? <laughs> anyway, this episode is brought to you by Rundy's Undies Athletic Underwear, which are brought to you from Jess Stenson, formerly Jess Trengove. They started it back in 2015. Uh, they're now my new favorite undies. I do all my runs in them because they're just there. They just feel good. They're nice and smooth. You won't understand until you put them on. Um, this isn't me just being a salesman either. I, I believe it. I mean it. I've got three pairs, and I wear them more than I should. They're smooth, breathable, supportive, and feature soft bam, uh, bamboo fabric in the gusset. They range in men, women. Uh, they have jocks, trunks, briefs, crop tops, and the new running G-string. So if you're interested in that, go to rundies.com.au. You're going to get a 30% discount because you're a relaxed running podcast listener all you got to do with your purchase is type in r-e-l-a-x three zero um that r-e-l-a-x all capitals just so you know and you'll get 30 percent off your purchase so jump across there uh, while that offer is still available all right guys hey let me get out of your way uh once again don't forget uh, relaxrunning.com slash join if you want to be a member we've got a little we've got a cool little crew going on over there so come and join it join the party it's a good place to be. All right, enjoy this chat with myself and Lee Troop. You're you're over in, in Colorado still, are you? Yeah, Boulder. Yep. 
Yeah, okay. Because uh, I was I was having a look through um, Facebook the other day, just trying to figure out when the the last time I caught up with you was. I know we just uh, talked about this before I hit record, but it would have been yeah, Ballarat, maybe two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. You said you were still doing a bit of uh, work with Monas Group up in Ballarat, were you? Yeah, I, I mean, I I was travelling. Well, I was living in Geelong, but I was travelling up um, predominantly Saturday for the hills. Um, to do that because I obviously love the, uh, the the Benson Hills. But, uh, yeah, the odd day through the week I would, uh, but I was doing a lot of it in Geelong. Yeah, okay. So how long have you been over in Colorado for? Uh, 11 years. Yeah, all right. So what, what, what took you guys over there? Because I know it's, it's funny, Colorado is such a – it's a beautiful hotspot. I know a lot of distance runners go there for a bit of the altitude, but is, is that a place you spend a bit of time throughout your running career or have you got family ties over there or, or what was the lure? Uh, so I – Came here in 2002-2003 and it was uh, off the recommendation of Robert D. Costello. So he'd lived here for, for a long portion of time and I you know, had been spending most of my summer up at Falls Creek and I would then uh, go to uh, England and you know do London Marathon or you know in '99 did, did some of the Diamond League meets and um, I don't know I just got sick of you know I was doing um, uh, St. Moritz and you know, just uh, I was told to, to check out Boulder, and I'd always wanted to race the uh, the road racing scene over here. I mean, I went to a junior college back in 1993, 94, um, but most of the racing that we did was always in Europe um, or in the UK. So um, so I came out here to, to train in 02 and 03, and I loved it. And then um, after the Olympics in 08, um, I thought I'd retire and so I'd always wanted to get back to Boulder and thought I'd come to Boulder for a year and I'd do the Boston Marathon and the New York Marathon and retire. And um, I eventually did retire about five years later, but I'm still here in Boulder. <laughs> so Boulder's just become home. It's funny. Um, I've, I've seen a few photos of Boulder on uh, on Google. I've obviously never been there, but the, um, the appeal of it to me is I'm a, a big fan of Joe Rogan's podcast, like every other bloke my age and uh he always talks about just escaping the city life and, and getting out to um getting out to colorado to enjoy some of those mountains and enjoy some of that that fresh air so it's uh it must be a bit of a, a, a change of pace from city i'm living here in hawthorne at the moment mate we're pretty keen to get up to point lonsdale or out near the water where there's just a little bit of space to run around is that is that pretty much what it's like it's just a real country country sort of feel or a real fresh air feel where you are um the thing that makes Boulder special is, you know, it's similar to Boulder. It's a hundred thousand people, and everyone here is just extremely active and healthy. So, you know, we've got rock climbers and bike riders and uh, triathletes and runners and mountain runners, and you know, there's just a, a whole, you know, plethora of sporting people, and um, everyone has a very active lifestyle here. And uh, we also lead the way in tech. Um, you know, uh, Boulder and, and Denver. Is sort of considered the uh, the Silicon Valley uh, of the Midwest, um, but yeah, there's just a lot to offer, and you know, raising children is good. I mean, I don't think it matter where you lived right now, uh, with obviously the pandemic that's going on, but um, yeah, just I mean, you know, I can go down the street and see Steve Jones, or you know, I can see you know um, Benji Durden, and there's Colin DeRook. I mean, there's just so many superstars from the sport of running that uh, that live here and it's just great that all of us have uh, have made boulder our home yeah so what they've found it the same way you have gone there for training back in the day and just fell in love with the place yeah it's it's got this um you know there's an old saying it's called uh chief Niwot. it's uh Niwot's curse 
and that is that uh, once you see the beauty, you'll never you'll never look back. And uh, that's pretty much Boulder, you know, with the flat irons and the mountains, and you know, it's a it's a small little utopia, which is uh, which is great. So, um, you know, that's not to say I'll end up living here for the rest of my life. I mean, um, right at the moment, I don't know what the hell we're doing with everything going on, but it's certainly been uh, it's been a great eleven years that we've been here so far. Yeah, have you got a few mountain lions running around up there? Oh yeah, there's mountain lions. I haven't seen any. I've heard one, oh. um, never never seen one. Um, but there are plenty of people that live in this town that say that they have. Oh my gosh, yeah, it sounds terrifying. I was thinking, um, I didn't know how often you guys saw those, but uh, I reckon that'd be enough to almost improve your running. Being up there running alone through um, <laughs> some sort of bushy areas, just knowing that they could be around. Um, yeah. Oh gee, yeah, it's got a bit of a reputation. Um, Mate, so you're doing some you're doing some coaching now more than more than anything, are you? You've you've obviously you've you've moved away from the the competitive side of the sport and and started putting that competitive spirit into the athletes that you're working with now, hey? Yeah, I mean, I've been coaching for uh, well, I'd say ten years. So I was still coaching when I, I started coaching when I was trying to make a fourth Olympics, um, and then I you know had you know a few different iterations of of that where I was coaching on my own, and then set up the Boulder Track Club, and then uh, took a break from that, and then uh, started up a new club called Team Boulder. But um, yeah, I've been yeah coaching for for quite a while, and um, it's been great. You know, um, obviously, um, I think. People have seen, you know, the success that I had just recently with Jake Riley, who made the, the U.S. Olympic team and, you know, finished second. Um, but, you know, I've also had uh, Laura Thweet, who ran uh, 225 at London in uh, 2017, and she also won the USA Cross Country Championships in 2015. And uh, a guy called Sean Quigley, who's retired, but he ran 27.50 and 2.13, and uh, a guy called John Gray and... Um, so yeah, I've been uh, very lucky um, over the last ten years to uh, to coach some some good athletes. Yeah, I enjoyed the tweet that you put out after Jake Riley just ran his two ten, finished second um, at the the US Marathon Trials. Just how simple it was, and that's that's one thing I wanted to pick your brain about because I remember years and years ago I, I remember listening to an interview of you speaking about how. Uh, distant runners love to complicate the process and uh, I don't know I don't think I'm making this up I, I think you said you operate with the with that kiss principle that keep it simple stupid principle and uh, I remember seeing a tweet that you put out after Jake Riley's qualification you said like there's no secrets this is his training this is exactly what he did um, there's nothing fancy about it. and I think that that really clicked with me because I've had a chat to a few exercise physiologists and stuff on here and one of the things that uh, one of the guys that I, I just can't get enough of, John Quinn, talks about is that we love to complicate the process. We love it to sound like we know something secretive and something that you're not going to be able to understand. And uh, just to see someone break through all the all the rubbish or all the jargon and say, okay, there's obviously processes behind this, but like if you just look at it in black and white, this is this is all they're doing. Is that is that something you've sort of operated through on your own uh, sort of marathon career and and you've just sort of transported into your coaching? Um, no, I mean, I think as an athlete, I probably overcomplicated uh, more things than, than I needed. Um, and I think certainly as a coach, you know, I've sort of gone back to the philosophy that I should have had. I mean, when you look at people like, you know, Mono and his coach, Chris Wardlaw, I mean, they were all very, um, you know, very basic in their approach and they used that KISS 
um, methodology. But um, I unfortunately always kept thinking that there was a secret and there was something more that I could do, you know, whether that was doing 150 mile weeks or whether that was training three times a day. And, you know, I certainly experimented um, a lot, which uh, obviously um, probably highlighted a lot of the uh, the good, the bad and the indifferent with my racing and, uh, and injuries. But uh, one thing I realized, you know, when I retired, um, I certainly could have got the same out of myself, if not more, had I kept it simple. Um, I kept looking for that that secret source to uh, to apply. Um, and so, yeah, so when you're listening and talking to people like John Quinn, um, who I respect and think is a fantastic guy, you know, they're trying to get athletes to, you know, certainly look at things um, at a very more uh, – at a practical way and, you know, by taking away – the complexities of overthinking, you're taking away a lot of the mental stress and anguish and a lot of that stuff that um, that's there psychologically and mentally and emotionally can be quite draining and then therefore take take away um, what your physical abilities are. So, you know, I've seen a lot of athletes that are probably, you know, more talented than me, but, you know, um, just that emotional um, uh, expenditure, um, you know, and then that mental approach and then that over over complication just led to them not getting the best out of themselves so as a coach now I, I try to keep everything very very basic and you know I want my athletes to be able to go home today knowing that they'll be there tomorrow um, and not leaving today beat up and sore and not knowing whether they're going to be there tomorrow so um, I think it also comes with just age and just um, you know being older and being wiser and um you know, I don't have anything to prove. You know, my career was what it was. So as a coach, you know, my job is to try and keep it as simple as possible um, so that the athletes can get the best out of themselves. Yeah, okay. So I, I know what it's like, mate, in the in the running world. We're, we're a pretty obsessive bunch of people and we love flipping every stone to make sure that we haven't missed anything and to make sure that there's nothing that we could be doing different or better or adjusting. And I know when you're in that uh, real competitive spirit, it can be tough to sort of take a step back and think that that simplicity could potentially be a a better option. It sounds like you understand that as well as anyone. But from a coach's perspective, how do you how do you sort of operate with the athletes when you do start to sense a little bit of that just overcomplicating a, a fairly simple process as you see it and as you've planned it? Like, is there any particular strategies? The reason I ask is because I know there's a lot of relatively new distance runners who listen to this podcast and um, I know what it's like when you're inundated with information to really know who to listen to or what to believe or what to implement. Like, is there any... Um, is there any sort of guidance or, or any sort of advice that you offer your athletes when they do feel a, a bit overwhelmed and, and unsure about which way to turn? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a number of ways that you can, um, you know, you can approach it, and you know, one is to actually sit down and actually talk to the athlete. I mean, I feel sometimes that um, there are other other influences that are driving the obsessiveness with the athlete. Um, you know, I see a lot of athletes that are running from problems as opposed to running to problems and running's their source to, to get away from, from mm. that. Um, you know, whether that's people that have, you know, had, you know, like abusive paths or had bad situations when they went to college or university or um, whether they've had a relationship breakup, you know, there's always some reason that running switch gets flicked up to high um and it's a way for them to you know just really um beat up on themselves but then also not have to deal with what they've got to deal with and you know i always tell athletes that uh, it's all good when you're running well but if you get injured then those problems are still there and they compound even more so you know for me it's more a case of like sitting down and just trying to engage and find out what these um potential 
problems are and you know, nine times out of ten they're, they're, there's always something there's a hidden yeah. hidden um component that has led them to that um sort of obsessive compulsive component with running um but then on the flip side there are also some athletes that you know i've recommended that they actually see a sports psychologist because there's only so much i can do in my so-called qualified and unqualified role um and uh unfortunately we had a uh, an extremely um difficult situation a couple of years ago with one of my top athletes committing suicide and taking his life. And, you know, the the thing that I see today, which is completely different from 10 years ago and then even 20 years ago, is the amount of pressure and stress that athletes are under is just – it's 10 times worse. Um, you know, the, the sponsorships are a little – um, shriveled up, so everyone's fighting for the same penny. People are trying to make, uh, you know, life – altering decisions as to whether they should stay where they are or relocate and you know the pressure that they put themselves under and you know particularly with American American kids a lot of that pressure comes from being in the NCAA you know they're, they're they're running to keep a spot on their team and that um, spot on their team allows them to get a free education and you know um, free product and you know so they're always under that um, that performance knife and so when they graduate from college that's all they know is to like to just to run from everything. And so, you know, it's a case of sitting down and trying to work out what you think you can fix and what you can't. And if you feel like that there are things that are just a little deeper and darker and, and need a much more qualified person to step in, that's when I would recommend that they see a sports psychologist. Mm, yeah, it's a really good point. It's uh yeah, there's so much in, in what you just said to unpack, but uh, yeah, I definitely agree that there's, uh, there's there's plenty of athletes and uh, I guess plenty of times where we're reaching that, that category of trying to run away from difficult problems rather than face it head on. But um, you touched on the emotional stress and I think, I think people really underestimate just how much the emotion that you're going through or the stress of your life can impact not only your quality of life, as, as it sounds like you've sort of experienced uh, firsthand with, with that story of your athlete who, who took his life, but um uh, obviously on your your running performance and it, it is interesting like I've, I've i've found it really interesting just learning about the way that different people cope with the stresses i, I spoke to ryan gregson on here a couple of weeks ago and funny you mentioned steve jones because apparently steve jones is quite a big influence uh, just in terms of his his mindset on on gregson like uh, i don't know if you've already heard this but apparently jones had a rule that after any race he'd give himself 60 minutes to to dwell on it to deal with it and then just move on because it's like if you don't have some black and white structure as to how long you give yourself degrees and to grieve and process, it's like it, it sort of starts to filter through to your next race. And I, I was running with Ben Buckingham um, in Melbourne the other day, and he was just telling me that one of the things he notices about the top athletes he trains with, like Stewie McSwain, is just their ability to really roll with the punches. He says there's there's not much that really phases them, and um, whether that's natural or, or something that's trained, it definitely stands out. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed that. that uh, I don't know Mona very, very well, but I, I've sort of ran with him a couple of times and I get that vibe from him. It just seems like, all right, you just, you get it done. Don't dwell on it too much. Don't stress too much. And it, it seems to, it seems to bear some fruit. There seems to be a correlation between the athletes who can let go of the pressure, the stress, the, the overwhelm that does come with the sport and the performance that they lay down on race day. Yep. Yep. I mean, and you know, I, I always said that, you know, if I had a dollar for uh, for every person I raced that was in the best shape of their life, uh, you know, leading into to a race and then uh, failed to execute, I'd be, I'd be super, super wealthy. <laughs> and, um, you know, th- there is a complete um, uh, disconnect for some people from, you know, training to then that racing mindset. And, um, yeah, it's just, you know, 
what Steve Jones, you know, did, you know, where we'd give him that, that hour to grieve and, you know, then the athletes, you know, sort of, you know, taking that on board to that's what they um, need to do. I mean, it's trial and error. Like there's no, there's no one way. Um, there's a, a multitude of different ways to find and it's up to the athlete to, to find what works. And I certainly tried a number of different ways when I was younger till I found a way that uh, I felt that I could cope in that situation. And, you know, I'd, I would go into races, you know, a lot more uh, relaxed and content and composed, um, but it took a while. Like, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have it off the bat. You know, I'd go into races quite stressed and, you know, quite, um, uh, again, over uh, overthinking and overanalyzing and trying to, you know, draw up all my awesome training. But going into racing is just a different mindset and, and how you approach it. And, uh, you know, there are days that you fly and there are days that you die. Mm. Um, but certainly, you know, how you deal with the success and the failure um, just takes time to, to work out to get it right. Um, and, yeah, like I said, I've seen better athletes than me not get the true success that they probably deserved. Um, and I think a lot of that was just due to the, the, the mental and the emotional uh, psyche of it all. Yeah. Troopy, what, you, you said that there was plenty of trial and error in your own career, just rocking up to the start line with a bit of stress and sort of overthinking the whole situation. What, what ended up working for you? Was there one way that you thought, all right, like I've just got to try and get a hold of this before each race and if I can, that'll really help? Or, or was it just constant trial and error and just in hindsight you've been able to look back and go, ah, I wish I had been able to bottle that? Um, yeah, I think for me, um, you know, like you go to races and like you want to be serious, right? You know, like you're, you're sitting there and you're just like, right, you know, I, uh, you know, I've trained for this and I've sacrificed for this. And, you know, as human beings, we, we, we judge ourselves quite harshly, right? And particularly like with track and road racing, there are people that have been there before us. So we're also comparing times to, to what other people have run through the years and records. And, I'd always turn up and, you know, I just, I just, I don't know, I just I was too serious. Like I, but I'd, I'd be thinking about the race like two or three days before and it would just be, you know, analyzing, overanalyzing, psychoanalyzing. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I was fit, but I really just wasn't taking confidence in how fit I was, you know, like, cause then you just sort of think, okay, I've got to execute this and I did this workout and this workout indicated X and then I did this other workout and that indicated Y and then this is what Z should be. <laughs> um, and you'd go in there and I, I would just run flat. And for me, the, the biggest, uh, key to my overall success that came was being able to be extremely loose and to be extremely, um, uh, carefree. Um, so those that know me know that, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a joker and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty lighthearted and, you know, so I try to keep that, that, um, that personality, you know, so going to races and, you know, I used to thrive when I would see people like super stressed, you know, cause I talked to them, you know, and I would make it even worse, right? You know, like they just want to sit in a corner and hide and I'd go out of my way to go up and talk to them and ask them how their, their training's going. It's like, oh, that's great. You're going to have such a great run, you know, and. It was also just a way of also just doing a little bit of reverse psychology, yeah. you know, and, and that's where I said if I had a dollar for everyone that was in great shape, but then when it came time to race and didn't race well, I would be extremely wealthy, you know. Like I hear people doing 2400s and they'd be doing it in 60 seconds, off 60 seconds, and I was just doing eight 400s. I was just doing the Deeks quarters, right, and, yeah. you know, but that what people don't realize on that workout is like I'm doing Deeks 
I'm doing the 400s in like 62 seconds, but I'm doing the 200 float in about 36 to 38 <laughs> seconds, right? And so you're continually pushing that threshold in that in that workout for that strength speed component. Um, and, you know, so when I get into a race, I'd always know that the weak spot in a 5K was once we were six, seven laps in. So, you know, when we're getting ready to like, 2k 2400 to then really turn the you know the screws up and it would be amazing how people would look like a million dollars up until that point until then all of a sudden you'd flick the switch and then you'd make them really hurt and then all of a sudden they're like oh crap i've got six laps they got five <laughs> laps like and then all of a sudden the wheels would fall off and you know i would finish 200 meters to some people overlapping them so um it just it took a it took a um it, it took a lot for me to work out what I needed and how I needed to do it. And I certainly feel like that it, it played uh, to my strength. You know, I could go to races and I could feel good about uh, my races. Um, you know, I wouldn't be stressed out on them. Um, and, you know, if I didn't run well, it wasn't through lack of effort. And I could certainly also um, take that on the chin. Uh, and if I had a good run, um, you know, I'd obviously be out drinking beers with uh, with my friends and, and celebrating it. So, um, but, you know, prior to that, like I'd beat myself up for three, four, five days, you know, like you'd just be depressed and you'd be hammering every workout. I mean, you just had a traumatic run, you know, like you've just like bled and then all of a sudden you're punishing yourself from a mental point of view and a psychological point of view, which just meant that your body was the one that was bearing the brunt of all of that. So, um, yeah, everyone's different. It's just finding out what works and what works sticking with it and you know I had a pretty good routine like I knew going into a marathon what my 10-day taper was if I was going into a like a a national championship I knew what my seven-day taper was and if I was going into a race just you know doing it off a a mini taper I knew what I'd be doing 72 hours before so um, I think having that um, that structure um, allowed me each time to know how I had to be feeling mentally every day leading into the race. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you speak about, like, I constantly make this mistake, you'll look at someone and and guess that you have a bit of an idea of their character, and I think to see you standing on a start line, which I watch plenty of times, you you never struck me as a bloke who looked too stressed, so it's, it's really interesting to hear what goes on behind the scenes, and I think that's encouraging as well, because I know there's been plenty of times when myself or people that I'm helping out, standing on a start line, they feel overwhelmed, they feel that something's wrong with them, because everyone else looks as though they've got it all together. And I guess that's the the tricky world of psychology is people can uh, play their cards in all different ways. And I love that story of you go up and, and have a chat to some of your, comp- uh, your competitors and just riling them up and, and just putting a little bit of uh, pressure, that competitive spirit coming out in a in a real interesting way. It's, uh, it can be a, a really uh, a really confusing sport if you're just judging someone based on, you know, the the poker face that they managed to hold at the at the start of a uh, at the start of a race, eh? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, as I said, everyone's different. There are some people that, you know, uh, need to approach it in a, in a different way, but you just got to find what, what works for you. And, uh, like, for me, I just needed to keep things lighthearted and enjoyable and, and have some fun. So, um, you know, I didn't get it right, you know, in the early part, but um, like your training and like how you do your taper, those things just take time to get right. Yeah. When you look back at your best performances, Troop, I'm, I'm first of all, I'd be interested to hear which one you think is best because there's a couple on the uh, on the biography that I reckon look pretty good. But are there are there certain things that stand out to you about those particular days? I remember the day I ran my 3K PB. I, I don't know what was going on, but I was standing at the start line and I just, for some reason, I just felt ridiculous, ridiculously relaxed. And even when the 
um, bloke said, get on your marks. I sort of just wandered up to the line. It was like I was, I was over, I was trying to convince myself how relaxed I was and I barely even got down into a start position. He fired the gun and I just remember at the end of that race going, all right, that's the strategy I use each and every week. Just convince myself that I'm more relaxed than I probably even am. And it, it like obviously didn't always work, but at least it, on the start line, the back of my mind, I felt like I was ready to go and calm and, you know, I'd done all I could to, to beat that point. But are there certain things like that that stand out to you about your best days? Um, yeah, I think most of uh, when I look back and think about it, um, I was certainly in a relaxed state of mind. Like I, I knew I was fit. My leading races were, were great. Um, I was healthy physically um, and I would take that confidence into a race. Um, and there's no doubt if you'd been sick or if you had been injured um, or training hadn't gone well, you definitely weren't as confident. So, you know, you need all the worlds to align um, and to, uh, you know, give you every chance. But if you've done everything that you're supposed to do from diet and rehab and, you know, your training and, you know, everything like that, then you should be confident going into a race. Um and, you know, and, and that's a big thing is like, you know, uh, I remember, you know, my college coach telling me that mental is to physical is three to one. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's right. Like, and I learned that off Mono. I mean, if there's one thing that, uh, you know, I mean, I learned a number of things off Mono, but the one thing I definitely learned about Mono was his mental tenacity and how he could always go beyond what you think he could do physically um and that's where i think you know for me like i i always talk about you know some of the the races that i i did injured you know i remember finishing 17th and running 211 at the world champs in paris in 03 with a broken toe and you know i remember winning the the u.s cross country uh, sorry the uh, australian cross country championships in 2000 when i'd been in bed with the flu for two days and i had to fly down from noosa to do it um all those races like it took me well beyond what I was physically able to do on that day by just being mentally tough and being able to just um, put put the pain aside and then just focus on you know like really grinding and and and, and running as tough as I could. So um, you know uh, you just when things are clicking like it's so easy you know like it's race after race that that you do that everything is just just popping and you know I certainly had a had a great period in sort of like 97 you know from um you know city to surf uh running uh 13 uh 36 at the melbourne grand prix meet to um you know being the first aussie at the zatapec running uh 2808 and you know that led on to 98 with Commonwealth Games and then 99 with Clarkie's record and debuting at um, at London and running 211. So, you know, when you've got consistency and you haven't been injured and you're building piece by piece, um, success is bound to come. Um, you know, I, I say to my athletes all the time, Rome wasn't built in a day, but it fell in one. Mm. Um, and so that period of time in that late 90s, I was just building my my Rome, my running, so to speak, just brick by brick. Um, and everything just seemed to have that seamless um, component to it until, you know, we got to 2000 and, you know, I got injured um, at the Sydney Olympics and then that then changed a lot of my um, my philosophies with, with running on, you know, like that I needed to train harder and, you know, I needed to do more and, um, and then that led to, you know, the, the inconsistencies of, of running, of being injured and running well, being injured and running well. But, um, yeah, I certainly don't feel like I had the, the ebbs and flows um, in the 2000s like I did in the 90s. 
Yeah, yeah. I tell you what, I remember that 2000 National Cross Country Race that you spoke about that you ran leading into it with the flu, Yarraben Park, eh? Correct. Uh, I was uh, pressured by uh, Mona and Dean Cavuto. Um, that just uh, that took me took me to the well on that day, and um, I remember I dropped about you know fifty to a hundred meters off, and I was hurting, and you know I was like, oh, I've just got to tick it off, you know, like it's all about the Olympics, and then I know something happens at halfway where I was like, come on, don't don't be a pussy, come on, like, <laughs> let's let's dig deep, like let's let's get going, and I. I, I just put in this one surge for about like a, a K or two K and I finally got on and then I got about a hundred meter lead and then that's all she wrote. That's uh, that was the, the winning margin. Bloody hell. Uh, again, it was just um, being able to learn to put myself outside of, of that comfort zone, um, which were the things that uh, Mono had taught me well. Yeah. And I reckon a young Mottram was in that race as well, wasn't he? I'm pretty sure he was. I mean, um, if you recall, um, there was obviously the um, controversy with uh, with Craig um, and Nick Howarth, I think, in the 1500, and then uh, Sean Crichton bypassed his spot on the 5K to run the 10K, which meant that Craig got the 5K spot. So um, I'm pretty sure he was up in Noosa training with me at that time and Mona and, uh, and flew down for the race as well. Gee, I still run around, so I'm living in Hawthorne, I don't know if I'll mention that, and I run around uh, Yarraben Park fairly regularly and get sentimental about that day. That was my first ever national cross-country as a 13-year-old kid, but I remember you, I remember watching you blokes run around and just thinking, oh my gosh, like I don't know I don't know how you can maintain that pace for so long, which I guess looking back is a pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty impressive kind of thing, but Troopy, I'm, I'm interested to pick your brain just a little more. We've, we've sort of touched on some of your training, the, the things that you've learned and the things that you adjusted along the way, but... I'm always interested to unpack just for anyone who might be curious about what really worked for you, whether there was a, a big chunk of time where uh, you were just in that that base building phase where your training had a particular look about it, where there was a certain structure. And I know over here in, in Australia, it's pretty much um, every every top athlete seems to operate the same way. It's the Sunday long run, Monday easy, Tuesday session, Wednesday longer um, is is that the sort of structure that you used, or, or or what really worked for you when you were smashing out your big five five k times and your marathon times, which you which you touched on there? Um, no, so I mean, I followed pretty much the same structure that Mona had, and that was you know three three workouts a week, so Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Mona Fartley, uh, Deeks Quarters, and then uh, the uh, Hills, uh, medium run one, uh, medium long run on Wednesday, which would always be around about an hour. Uh, 30 to two hours and then we do our long run Sunday which would be two to two and a half hours so um, and that was twice a day every day um, so there was nothing um, basic about it I mean obviously if I went to a race we backed off on the on the volume um, but it was pretty pretty regular uh, that week in week out yeah and looking back it's it's interesting now because there's a lot of talk about recovery and all the other stuff that supports your actual running but I don't know back in the late 90s or mid 90s uh, when you're when you were pumping around how much of a, a focus that was for you guys was there was there a lot of recovery and stuff outside of the track workouts that you were doing to, to really emphasize that running um, no I think I think back then um, all of us just uh, you know just uh, you know like we, we got recovery through the day but we were just constantly tired um, hmm. we just were always just um, yeah, just always on edge doing what we were doing. And, uh, but the, the secret was getting that, that cumulative effect of week in, week out, you know, month in, month out, 
um, you know, getting training over that longer period of time. So, um, and that to me is the key to success. You know, it's um, you've got to get the cumulative effect of training um, to be beneficial. I mean, um, it's like if you know. There's a hundred different analogies that you can use, but you know a couple of them we use. Uh, it's like putting um, a dollar in your bank account every day. You know, the the more it doesn't look like a lot to start off with. You know, you've only got thirty dollars after thirty days, but if you're able to build that up over one, two, three years, all of a sudden you're looking at two thousand, three thousand dollars, and then that becomes obviously a lot more attractive. Um, now the other great one was. Um, like the old phone book. I know we don't have phone books anymore, but, uh, you know, like every page in that phone book represents a day of training and you can easily rip one of those pieces of paper in half. And that shows that one day of training, um, is not going to give you a lot, but if you're able to accumulate a whole yellow pages, um, you can't rip that. You can bend it and you can twist it, but you can't rip it. Uh, and that, again, is reflective of your training. So the more you do, the bigger base you build, you know, the less chances you've got of injury, even though that's not really true. But um, the better success you will have with running just because you'll have built up um, a lot more fitness. Um, you'll be uh, stronger, you know, faster. So, um, yeah, again, it's, it's a simple thing, but it's just a time thing. You've got to be, got to be patient with it. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I'm thinking about Liam Adams as you speak, and I, I sat down with him, and it was a popular podcast because uh, I, I called it "How to Train Consistently and Work Full Time" because that's that's what he's doing. And I don't know how how well you know Liam, but man, like he's a he's a I don't know how to explain him. He's just a, he's an out there unit in terms of what he gets done, and speaks about so casually as being normal. But I asked him about so he recently ran his his two ten marathon over in Japan and I said mate so what what's the schedule looking like it's obviously just dedicated towards running having no idea what he was doing he's like nah mate like I've just I've finished my apprenticeship as a um, he's an electrician or something and he's like mate I'm out here in Melbourne and some mornings I'm up at four thirty and I'm not getting home till six I'm starting my run at six thirty and <laughs> like he's operating on these massive days and he's still I think he says he tries to get about thirty k's done each day but and it, it, on paper it definitely doesn't sound like the ideal program for any athlete to take on but that cumulative effect that you were speaking about he's he's been building and building and building for years so I guess his body's still responding so well to the training like I don't understand how a, a bloke like that could could function otherwise without um sort of the approach that you've just explained like that cumulative effect that building of strength and just his body responding like does that i don't know if you know liam well enough to speak to that but it's a does that does that surprise you because i've got so many comments from listeners going mate what is this guy human yeah i i mean let's put it into perspective right he's not doing anything that the guys in the 80s and the 90s did i mean steve jones was a world record holder and he was a full-time air force mechanic so yeah. you know what liam's doing is what most athletes should be doing you yeah. know and it creates normality i mean the the time that liam goes to work he's not thinking about running and you know i strongly advocate for all my athletes that they should be doing at least 20 hours a week of work um 20 hours a week of work is 20 hours of less time that they're thinking about running and we talked about obviously how athletes um, analyze overanalyze and psychoanalyze if you're not working and if you don't have that outlet that's all you're doing so you wake up you're thinking about your workout you go out and do your workout you come home and you know and then you're like well I better have lunch and you know I'm gonna have an afternoon nap and <laughs> then you're thinking about the workout again that night and you're thinking about the workout tomorrow and you know that that sets a really bad precedent and I think we have some athletes that are just way too precious, you know, like what Liam's doing, it, like it's amazing because most people look at that as abnormal, 
But what Liam is doing is what everyone did in the early periods of time. And so, like I said, I always refer back to Steve Jones. I mean, Jonesy broke the world record and he was a full-time Air Force mechanic, right? So, you know, if you look at someone like that, then you're like, okay, well, then that's probably what you should be doing. But, you know, we got lost there in a period of time where people were, you know, wanting, you know, these contracts. And, I mean, I was the same. I thought that if I was to be a good athlete, I should be full-time. And, you know, I ran marginally quicker than what I was doing when I was working 20 hours a week in a bank. Um and I think a lot of that had to do with I just had more time on my hands. And so more time on your hands just means more more thinking and analyzing, which can be to the detriment of, of what you do. And there's only so much you can do, right, in a day. So if you're going to be a full-time athlete, then all of a sudden these athletes, are, they're going to the gym and they're throwing in a cross-training workout and they're at, you know, activating you know a, a rest period, a sleep period. And you know, they're doing all these things. But I don't think it's actually helping them with their mental growth, um, you know, because y- your brain needs to have, you know, some um, some spontaneity. It's it's got to it's got to be stimulated. Um, and if you end up just doing that seven days a week, thirty days a month, and you're doing that for the whole year, you know, it, it can become um, quite numbing. So I think having that outlet is pretty pretty critical for your overall uh, health and well-being and it's just great that uh, Liam is able to do what he does and he's just proving to people that hey I got a job and I'm out there training and yep all right my level of performance is uh, is greater than a lot of every uh, everyone else that's running but I'm no different you know and uh, that's just how things used to be so um, I think it's great yeah no it is good that's actually a fresh perspective I think I've probably lost in the um, the the world of a, pressure, a professional runner, obviously just doing it full time, and even even Stewie, who I mentioned earlier, I remember just before he ran seven thirty four, I bumped into him at the ten, and I said, "Oh mate, what are you doing with yourself?" He's like, "No, I'm just in the middle of my teaching rounds." And I was like, "Oh, what what are you talking about?" And he said uh, something to the effect of what you just explained. He goes, "Mate, I, just, I can't be bothered sitting at home just thinking about running all day. I'd much rather be out there getting a degree and, and putting it into practice." So that, it definitely pays off. But yeah, it's so interesting. Like it. Has veered quite a way away from the from the eighties and even early nineties, hasn't it? It has, and uh, you know, it just that was where we felt that we needed to go with the professionalism of sport. Um, but like, look look at where we are now, right? You know, we have a pandemic, and you know, there are no races, and people now are, are training, but then there's no races to train for, um, and so now we're seeing a lot of athletes that are struggling mentally with this, you know, and. You know, I don't want to downplay, you know, uh, depression and things like that. But when you're not actively chasing what it is that you want to chase, then that can lead you to a point of, um, you know, not having that contentment. So um, I think, you know, those that have uh, still got work and able to work remotely and, you know, it gives them an outlet to think on. And, and that's the important factor in all of this is that there's only so much time you can dedicate to your craft, but you've got to have an outlet uh, to help you cope with with everything that you're doing. So, um, you know, and again, it's it's different for everyone. You know, people have to find what that is. I mean, I have kids that graduate from college and they want to move to Boulder and they want me to coach them. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do for work? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what do you have a degree in? And they're like, oh, I was just thinking I'd get a job at a running store and, you know, um, and then I'd be able to fit my training in. And it's like, well, we've got a couple of running stores in town, but what makes you think you out of, you know, 100 people that are going to move here in the summer is going to get a job, you know, and then rent is extremely expensive here. You know, the, the, the cost of living in Boulder is extremely high. Um, so a lot of athletes leave, 
you know, they come in with the greatest intentions, but they just don't have that backup plan or, or another outlet, which then leads them to the point where they can't afford to, to live here and uh, they end up moving back home. Yeah. So have you got a lot of athletes just contacting you from, from around the States in Australia to, to come over there, Troopy? Or what, what's the story? How do you find your athletes? Obviously, I can imagine it helps with the story of people like Jake Riley and some of the athletes you, you mentioned earlier putting out some really big times. It, uh, it starts to make you look a, even more attractive as a coach. But yeah, where are most of your athletes contacting you from? Yeah, no, they're just primarily here in the US. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've you know, going back in the day, you know, like we had a big group of 20-odd people and it was all fantastic. And then, you know, um, having the, the death of an athlete, I had to take some time out and I definitely don't want to go back down that, that road again, you know, because the more athletes you have, the more different personalities you have and the more different personalities you have, the more stress that there is for you um, to have to give everyone 100% of your time. And again, we're only human, right? And we can't, we can't give everyone what they want, particularly when there's um, when there's big numbers. So, um, you know, I've got a much smaller group now and I'm able to give everyone what they want and I'm also able to um, have a little bit of contentment for me. You know, like I'm not coming home beat up or I'm not coming home depressed or I'm not coming home um, sad and overworked and, you know, just, just struggling with, you know, with the, um, with the day-to-day um, job that comes with, with coaching. Um, and, and coaching... If running was simple, we'd all be fantastic at it, right? But it is the mental side of it that lets us see the winners versus those that don't. And as a coach, it's delving into that mental side. You know, we're, we're unqualified psychologists, yeah. right? And we're trying to fix and help and mend, um, you know, runners to be better. Um, and we're uh, analysing their diets, their their uh, their cross-training, their rehab, their um, the, the training, the racing. And so... It, it's tough, you know, it, and it can have a toll on uh, on on coaches. So um, for me, you know, I'm pretty selective um, with you know who I take on now, and you know, I leave it up to the group to to decide. And um, I'm certainly at a point now where I turn away more than I take on, just because I, I need to look at a, at a lot of things, you know, and um, you know, a lot of people will see success and then think that the grass is greener on the other side, and then they'll want that coach to coach them because they'll believe that it'll allow them to be successful. But the reality is there are so many factors that go in mm-hmm. um, and it's trying to find a fit for all of those factors. Um, you know, I end up getting athletes that come here and they have the right intentions, but then all of a sudden, you know, halfway through the cycle when things aren't clicking, they then want to start coaching the coach, you know, and they <laughs> start saying, well, this worked for me in college. And oh, I remember I used to do this years ago with my other coach and, you know, things are different, you know, like people are moving to altitude and they're never trained at altitude. Um, you know, people have gone just out of college and then they're trying to make it as a professional athlete and they've got to get a job. So they've got to balance a new job in a new environment um, with altitude. Um, and so these things all take time. But, you know, a lot of these kids have already spent four years at college and they want to go from zero to hero. And that's just not how I work. You know, I I usually tell them that the time that you put in at college is the time that it's going to take to be a professional athlete. And, you know, some take it on the chin and some don't. And, um, yeah, then it's hard. You know, some of them are trying to force a square peg in a round hole. And, you know, it's just there are just a lot of things that come to work out whether there's that symbiotic relationship. And, you know, there's no doubt that with the athletes that I've got, you know, I've talked about that my training is very, very basic and we all know that, but it's the other factors, it's the other one percenters that you're trying to pull together to um, 
help make that difference. You know, if, if training is the same for everyone, you know, okay, well, that's one piece of the pie. Then what makes it successful for my athletes? And a lot of it's just the mental side, the investment um, that's made, you know, um, financially and emotionally into each of the individuals for um, for that to be the, the deciding outcome uh, when they're at their racing. Mm. I've got enough friends who are who are coaches in the athletic world to know that it can be a a fairly emotional sort of investment just in terms of riding the roller coaster of emotion that you just touched on with a number of the athletes is wondering about their training but I I remember reading and I I didn't know if you had hung up the coaching hat just temporarily which obviously in hindsight turns out to be what it was but um, I don't know his name I'm sorry but I remember reading about your athlete who who did take his own life a few years ago and um, you just speaking a little bit about how you're just gonna, you know, you're gonna just put spend some time aside and just recalibrate a little bit. Like, what was, what, how, how do you navigate a period like that, Troopy? And what what sort of got you back into the uh, into the running shoe or into the the running coaching role after after that? Um, look, great question. Um, you know, I've probably talked a little more freely um, about it. Um, you know this year than, than I did um, last year and the year before, but I, I didn't handle it well at all. Yeah. Um, you know, it's um, it's just gut-wrenching, you mm-hmm. know, like you have an athlete that you see every day and, you know, you, you travel to races with and you go to training camps with and, and then all of a sudden you get a phone call from their mum that they've taken their life and the thing is then you start to go through everything like what did I do? Mm-hmm. Um, what did I miss? Like how could I have prevented this? Um, you know, when you make that in, um, emotional investment in in young men and women, uh, you're there riding with them. You know, you ride if they fly and you ride if they die. You know, like you're just there with them, and um, you know, just yeah, it, it like when it happened. You know, obviously, you know, I was still coaching, and you you're trying to navigate, but you know, unbeknownst to me, but uh, uh, beknownst to to many others, I was just. I was slowly just slipping off this edge and, mm. you know, um, I just wasn't uh, able to deal with it well. You know, like, I mean, I've, I've had people die. I mean, I was uh, emotionally shaken when Karen, Karen passed away, but we knew that, you know, she had cancer and, mm. you know, it was, I was very lucky to say goodbye to her before she passed away. And, you know, I traveled with Karen, you know, I trained with Karen. I, you know, I spent Christmas, <laughs> Christmas with her, um, <laughs> up in Coldale and, you know, you grieve, but you you grieve knowing that at least, like, A, you knew it wasn't a shock, but you're also there on that journey, whereas in this situation, I wasn't. It just came out of nowhere. And so, like I said, I went through just uh, a lot of different emotions of of sadness and sorrow and guilt and, you know, um, self-doubt, you know, then questioning whether I was a good coach. Mm. Um, you know, having an athlete not perform well in a race is one thing, um, but then when someone takes the ultimate, uh, has the ultimate um, outcome with what they did, then that changes the whole the whole narrative and the whole state of the game. So um, I ended up taking the time out that I needed, um, and it, there was just a couple of athletes that I was still helping out. I wasn't there wasn't this huge investment with them, like what I needed to do with them was very, very basic. I mean, one of them was, was Jake Riley and he was coming back from having an Achilles operation. Like I, I he might've been up at the walk jog phase, you know? <laughs> and so it, it wasn't like I had to go to coaching. It was just like, yeah, 
run for a minute, walk for nine, do that three times. And tomorrow, you know, run for two, walk for eight. And, um, and then I had another young girl called Carrie Verdon who, um, who, uh, had just graduated from college and she'd taken a year out and I was getting up at six o'clock in the morning to coach her cause she's a teacher. Um, and so I was just on my own. So, I mean, I'm, I'm driving my van in the middle of winter, you know, with snow and it's dark, but I've got the music on and I've got the headlights on so she could see. And <laughs> yeah, I was on my own. Right. So it wasn't yeah. like I was with four or five other athletes. And I, I found that I had to always put on this happy face and I always had to, um, be the larger than life guy, but, deep down inside I was suffering with my own depression and I was in a very dark place and I had shut myself off from a lot of things and um, I just wasn't dealing with it well but you know just one morning I'm just out there and I'm just like you know it's probably the morning that it was snowing and I just admired this young girl who was out there putting in the hard work the blood sweat and tears and you know doing it and and was wanting me to help her Hmm. you know and and then, I, like I said, I had Jake, who um, who had been a, a successful athlete but had been injured, and he moved to Boulder because he wanted me to coach him. And you know, here I was, you know, contemplating turning my back on all of that. So um, I, I sort of went in with a very um, guarded approach, and you know, sort of spoke to them all individually, and sort of said, "All right, look, I think I sort of want to get back into coaching. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but you know, it's, it's going to be baby steps, and if you're prepared to work." with me on that and that'd be great and if you don't and you feel like you need to move on elsewhere i i understand and um that's how it ended up playing out i mean that's i think the the beautiful part of the story with the success that that jake had uh, i mean on that same day uh carrie ran at the pan american championships in canada and got a silver medal um you know a month earlier she won a bronze medal at the usa championships and the last time that girl performed well was when she uh won a medal at the under 20 usa championships in uh 2015 i think so i uh, actually don't it would have been 2013 um so um yeah just again for me i always like that that comeback athlete you know mm. I, I certainly like the athlete that wasn't considered good in college and then ends up becoming good you know they've got nothing to lose um it's probably a little terrifying when you've got an athlete that's automatically already good and <laughs> then you've got to add another layer onto that and I had that with Sean Quigley uh he was already a standout kid in college and had success before I started coaching him but his coach had passed away and had a heart attack and you know, it was like, oh crap! How am I going to build on that? Like, he's already had success with his with his other coach, but we found a way. You know, we ran twenty seven fifty, and you know, he made Chiba, and he'd um, made uh, the the boop across country, and he ran two thirteen. And um, you know, you just find a way. Like when when you've got the right athlete that you click with on so many levels, it, it just works. You know, like I, I had that with Laura; she wasn't a standout at uh, at CU, and. As I said, we had some great success with her. You know, she was able to run low, uh, sorry, 31 high for the 10K and win US Cross and, you know, debuted at 228 at New York and then 225 at London. And, yeah, it just, it, it just clicked. And um, when John passed away, I lost – I personally just lost that, what I would call the magic um, that I felt that I had. And I just had a lot of self-doubt and questioned whether I was as good as what I possibly thought I was and – it just took um, a couple of years for me to get that uh, that confidence back, and you know I've certainly got a great group of kids that uh, have have been there with me and allowed me to to find my own my own feet again, and um, yeah, I'm certainly enjoying it. Yeah, it's one of those things, Trippy, isn't it? Like I always say, you you can't really practice for 
for grief and it, it's so easy to say and, and then when you experience it for yourself like obviously um far out i pray i probably never have to but i've never experienced something to to that degree but um but even just losing people that are quite close close friends and and just family members yeah you start to try and navigate this this strange world of grief which you I guess in our society, we tend to do our best to avoid those negative emotions. Everything is about, I guess, improvement and success and how we look on the outside. And then to be confronted with those those inner demons or whatever, for the lack of a better word, and, and navigate that strange world of grief, it can be it can be pretty confronting. But I found the same as what you just said, just like giving yourself the opportunity to, I guess, be honest with how you're really feeling and not have to be the life of the party and just endure these difficult emotions can, can be almost the best healing process better than better than any tablet or better than any sort of quick fix yeah and you know it takes time right i mean you know as i said before i've always been a larger than life guy and you know i've been popular with um with my friends and family and you know i i sort of like i I disappeared like i was just off the off the deep end that people just move on with life right and then you get people going oh what's going on with you i haven't heard from you you know what have you been stuck up for? And, you know, like we always always hear the, the saying, you know, like to check on with people. I mean, you know, particularly when it comes to, you know, with mental, uh, the mental side of things, you know, we, we see all those great um, catch cries of, you know, like always check in on a mate, you know, like what does it hurt to give someone a call and, and say hi and, you know, and I've been guilty of it myself, right? You know, like you don't hear from someone. You're like, well, what's up their ass? You know, like yeah. I, you know, I thought, I thought we were friends. I thought we were, were tied and, you just don't know what people are going through. And, um, yeah. you know, I'm not a very good communicator, um, particularly with things like that. I, I take it on a lot, lot more. Um, you know, I, I certainly beat, uh, myself up internally a lot. Um, but, you know, and coming out of it, like I'm, I'm different, you know, um, you know, I've lost friends over what happened and I've made friends over, over what's happened. And, you know, there's, there's no right or wrong way, but, um, you know, the one thing I, 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 I've certainly noticed and particularly now, like going through this pandemic is, um, we, we just don't seem to be as connected as we once were, you know, like we, we just have so much more going on these days and, you know, um, it's sad that, you know, like that's, that's my advice. You know, like my advice has always been to be connected to, to ring everyone, like call all my friends on their birthdays and, you know, always be the guy to bring people together of like, Hey, we're all in the same place. Like let's all meet up at a pub. And, you know, and I lost all that. You know, I just, I wasn't interested. I didn't want to call people on their birthdays. I didn't want to be the guy organizing events. If anything, I didn't want to go to events. I just wanted to stay at home and, and do my own thing. And, um, it took a it took a long time to to get out of that hole that I was in, and um, you know, and and things are different now. You know, like I mean, I'm I'm certainly a lot better, um, but I'm certainly not the guy that I that I used to be. And and same with coaching, I'm I'm not the same coach. And whether that's good or bad, you know, time will tell. But I certainly think through experiences, if you um if you take the time to to um you know be like be critical with it um, and, you know, also be, you know, positive through it all, um, you end up becoming who you become. And, I mean, that's part of growth, you know, that that growth in life comes from the experiences that we have and the people or the person that we end up becoming is through all of this. So, um, you know, I mean, I'd love to turn back the clock and go back to the 90s and, you know, have fun and do all the things that we did. But, that's not a reality anymore, you know, like I'm 47 and, you know, <laughs> you know, almost hitting 50 and I've got three kids and the demands on my life are, are completely different than what they were back then and, 
Um, but it's how you approach it and how you think about it and what you put in place that certainly determines how well you get out of it. So, um, yeah, like I said, things are, are clicking along a lot better than what they were a couple of years ago. Yeah. Hey, I reckon Jake Riley would uh, would probably lock in that you're a better coach than what you were before, wouldn't he? Who comes out and runs 210? Yeah, look, I'm lucky, you know, like he's 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 a very talented kid. I, I saw him racing uh, before I started coaching him when he was running with the Hansons and I've always respected his his tenacity and even when he moved here, he had a lot going on. Like he, you know, he was uh, going through a divorce and, you know, he'd had this Achilles injury which he couldn't get right and we wanted to give it one more shot before we went down the path of uh, him having an operation and, you know, the, the things that we worked on was giving him balance in life, you know, and it, I'm pretty sure he ran away to Boulder to escape his issues and just figured that the grass was greener on the other side and it would work. But to his credit, he's made everything work. You know, he's now a um, an SAT um, uh, teacher, so um, he uh, works with works with kids to improve their SAT so they can get into, into college, so he's a home tutor. Um, he's back healthy with his running, but you know when he first started, he had to get over an Achilles injury. So that also meant that he had to do a lot of cross training. Then he had to do a lot of um, strength and conditioning training, and then he had to implement the actual running. And you know he's now got a, a girlfriend, and you know he's got balance. He's he's content. He's he's found his place in the world at the moment that he can just be happy, and that goes a long way in helping him be a better athlete. Um, you know, whereas when he moved here, he didn't have any of those things. He was injured, was going through a divorce, um, was, was bitter with how his running had panned out over the last couple of years and he hadn't got the best out of himself. And so he had all these chips on his shoulder or had all these bricks on his shoulder and those bricks are weight, you know. And so my job was to help move those bricks one by one to help him be a little bit more freer and to have a little bit more less weight that he had to deal with um, so that we could focus on the things that were important and uh, he's able to get himself there. I mean, he, he gets all the credit. Like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. And he was able to take all of that stuff on himself. He was able to be critical with himself, um, but he also knew what changes needed to be made in order for him to give himself every chance of potentially getting back to his best. And he didn't only get back to his best, he got you know better. You know, he ran 210 at Chicago and then he ran 210 at the trials and next year he goes to the Olympic Games. So I think that's a, you know, a great, great story. Yeah, what an exciting thing. Trivia, mate, I could, I could talk to you all day, but I told you an hour, so I don't want to go too far into your evening over there. But, uh, mate, maybe maybe in the later the, later in the year we could touch base again and, and have a round two because it's uh, you're an easy bloke to talk to. That time just flew by. I just saw the time then thought, I can't believe how bloody quick that's just gone. No, mate, my pleasure. And uh, again, those that know me know that I love to talk, so uh, <laughs> it's not a problem at all. Awesome, Troopy. Hey, thanks a lot, and we'll, uh, we'll catch you soon. You bet, mate. Great to chat. Cheers, Troopy.